It's a real joy to be back in Kirksville. I believe I was here, was it 76 or 77? I believe I went to Brookfield in 76 and I came down. It was somewhere in there and I met uh, Charles and Dick and other of the brothers and, um, and uh, we've had some very precious fellowship in years gone by, although I've been preoccupied and hindered hindered from coming. So I appreciate your prayers. The saints in Grand Rapids want always for me to greet the saints here. I fellowship with a little meeting. They call it Grace and Truth Christian Fellowship. We ran a Christian school, and I've been meeting with them now for about 15 years, maybe more than that. But they send their Christian greetings. And uh, and I want to tell a little about my testimony. I've met a lot of you, know many of you, but I was saved in 1972. I'm from North Dakota, and I was raised in a religious home. But as a young person, I realized that even though uh, many of the people I looked up to, they had all their strong opinions my parents were very involved in politics. It was really more important to them than the Lutheran church where they attended. But uh, I realized that even though they had all these strong opinions, it didn't make them better people. And that they need, I needed something more. Really, politics was the big thing in our home. And one time a friend of mine asked, he, said what, he asked me what my religion was, and I said, the Democratic Party. <laughs> That's what I thought it was. So, um, and but uh, as a young person, it was a, during the time of the Vietnam protests, and I saw the fervor of these uh, the protest movement. I began to read books and attend rallies and and listen to the music, and I was searching, but I was ensnared. And I remember getting involved with the, with the youth culture of that time. Many young people were involved in drugs. And in an 18-month period, I started experimenting, seeking out people who were involved in drugs. And in an 18-month period, my entire life spiraled. I was just a kid. I was a child. I didn't know anything. But it's amazing how that in such a short time, every wholesome activity I would have been involved in, Football, wrestling, track, chess club, Boy Scouts, church youth group, all these. I was a joiner. I was involved in all these things. And in just a short time, I had given up on all those wholesome activities and was totally devoting myself to spending time with my friends out on the street trying to get high. I had claimed to have been a Christian. I'd been to Bible camp. I'd prayed prayers. I'd walked forward to an altar and tried to recommit. That's the way we talk. We would recommit our lives. And, and, uh, and yet, the thing that convicted me the most was when I began to curse and swear with my friends. Because I thought, John, if you really loved God, why do you talk about him the way you do? I didn't love God. I did love my sin. And the thing you'll notice about sin is that when a person loves it, they commit themselves to it, and all the major decisions of my life were made determined by that commitment. How I spent my time, my money, and the, cho the friends I chose. 
And one time I was in a, in a park in Jamestown, sitting around with some of these friends, a group of eight of us, I think. And they were talking about what they were going to do next summer. And every one of them either had been or was going to reform school or prison. <laughs> and, I, and I looked at that and I thought, this is the choice I've made. I've made this commitment. These are now my people. And I began to despair that there was any hope for me. And it was just at that time that on three occasions I met believers who testified to me. And none of these people were from religious backgrounds. I was from a community where they'd ring the church bells uh, regularly during the day. And at, like at noon, you'd hear the church bells. They'd let out school to go to Bible club. And it was a very religious... I think we had two Methodist churches, a Presbyterian, Episcopalian, congregational about 25 Lutheran churches <laughs> and one Catholic church. It was a very religious community. And, and yet all these people who witnessed to me were irreligious. One had been a heroin addict from New York City. One had been an ex-convict who'd spent more than half of his life behind bars. Another couple guys had been drug dealers out in California. And one of these fellows, he pointed at me and he said, before I became a Christian, I was living just like you're living right now. And the, the way he, I think he meant it to convict me, but to me it gave me hope because I saw that he was a Christian, he knew where he was going, and I thought, I thought there was no hope for me. But he's a changed man. And it was only a while after that, once I came to recognize that I really wasn't a Christian, that I truly became convicted. Because then I knew that I was in danger of going to hell. And the more I thought about it, I realized not only might I go to hell if I died, but if I died in the condition I was in. This is my reasoning. The night I got saved, God would have been obligated to put me in hell. And I, I began to cry out to God. I, began, I didn't know where to look. I couldn't remember a verse. I couldn't quote John 3.16. But the words of a children's song came into my mind. And you might know it. Serve Him, serve Him, all ye little children. God is love, God is love. And that thought, God is love. Well, that's a verse out of 1 John. Is it possible that God could love me after all the things I've done? I was a mean, rotten kid. I was the kind of kid parents told their children, don't hang around with the Bjorley boy. That was the kind of kid I was. I was just an evil kid. But could God love me? And then that verse, I, I don't know if I remembered the verse or the thought of the verse, but it was Romans 5, verse 6, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I knew I was ungodly. I was understanding that, but I realized I was without strength to do anything about it. I didn't understand the mechanics of the cross. I didn't understand theologically very much, hardly at all. I was ignorant. But I thought, I don't understand it, but I'm simply going to trust him. And I just cried out to the Lord that night. And God met me. And I, I had that experience. I know that God heard me. I just began, as, I just began to confess every sin I could think. And 
And I'm not saying every other conversion says, well, this was what happened to me. And I just began to pray and, and mention I, every sin I could think to, to pray about. And, and, the, and the thing that was hindering me as I was beginning to pray is, I don't know if I can ever get victory over this. I don't know if I could ever face this. But I was saying, Lord, you see me. You see where I am. And I'm just going to trust you to give me the strength. Well, uh, and that was in June of 72, and God was very merciful to me, put me into a situation where I was removed from all these, these wicked kids that I had been hanging around with. And, uh, and, and two, two weeks after I was saved, the girl that I would marry got saved. Down in Dallas, Texas. And we were married in 78. We have nine children. And God has been merciful to us with our children. We thank God. I uh, just thank the Lord for a wonderful Christian wife, and I thank God so much for our dear Christian friends. Beloved, if you've got good Christian friends, hang on to them. Amen? He that has friends must show himself friendly. And it really means everything. Because our, many of our relatives were not saved, but we had godly, grandmotherly, grandfatherly type people in our lives that became grandparents to our children. The Pell family and all these other godly people that we knew. And so many, they'll tell us, we pray for you every day. <laughs> so so I, uh, that has been a wonderful deliverance in our Christian life. So um, that, that's a little, and I could probably go on and on, but I... <laughs> so the Lord is so kind to us and so merciful. I want to turn to a verse over in Matthew chapter 9 with you. There's an expression that we have, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You've heard that? Well, there's, an, there's, another, there's another saying, out of sight, out of mind. They're pretty much the opposite. But for us today, our Lord Jesus has gone away, hasn't he? He went away to glory. He's up in heaven. And this was an idea that the Lord Jesus began to prepare his disciples for when he was here on the earth. That he was going to one day go away. And so we have a twin truth in the Christian life. These two truths are a unique thing that happened at the ascension of Christ and at Pentecost. That there is a man in heaven and that God by the Holy Spirit is on earth. Now, God has always worked on earth. There were men in heaven before also, but there was never a man sitting at the right hand of God. He ascended where no man ever could have ascended. He went not where Elijah, Elijah couldn't have gone there, or Enoch, but he ascended far above all principalities and powers. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And then the Holy Spirit has always been working on earth. But at Pentecost, he came down in a unique sense. And so the Lord Jesus, he began to prepare his disciples for this great change. And you'll see this through the Gospels. I want to point this out. Because it shows us, it teaches us about what faith is like. And as we understand it, It'll help us in our affection for our risen Savior. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 9. 
And there in verse 14, the disciples of John came to him, the Lord Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or the patch pulls away in the garment from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. The Lord Jesus is talking about a new thing. We read about the new covenant. Something new is going to happen. Two questions. Who is the bridegroom? Who is the bridegroom? What, what did, there you go. John, what did John the Baptist say in John 3? He that has the bride is the bridegroom. Remember how the Lord Jesus told a story in Matthew 22. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who made a marriage for his son. The Lord Jesus is the bridegroom. And that's what you have in the Revelation. Well, when are these times that he's speaking about when the bridegroom will be taken away? What's that? When will the bridegroom be taken away? Did somebody say now? He was taken away when he went off to Calvary, but then three years, three days later he reappears. But then after that short time he's with his disciples, he ascended and he's been taken away. Now the disciples are saying, are saying, why is it that you don't fast? Fasting is an act of self-denial. It's associated with mourning and grieving. Sometimes when you're going through some great loss, you don't even want to look at food. I don't want to think about it. And so you'll have that in Scripture. Fasting? Well, when the bridegroom is with, if, if there's a celebration on, we'll have a feast and we'll be happy. But there's coming a time when you'll feel a great loss. The solemnity will come over you. And self-denial, that's going to be characteristic of the time. And so he talks about a time when the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will fast. Well, that's the time we're presently living in. I think this is the first time he talks about this. Now, maybe there's other references to it, but I notice this. The disciples really enjoyed being around the Lord Jesus. I think so. Because he was their protector. He was there to answer their questions. He was a guide. He was a shepherd to them. Think of it. They could sit down next to him. They could hear the intonation of his voice when he would speak. They could observe the expression on people's faces when they would have those interviews. Have you ever wondered what that was like? I sure have. To be right there with him. To hear the pad of his feet walking down the path. And to brush up against his shirt sleeve. What a thing. But then he says, there's coming a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. Hmm. Hmm. What's that mean? Then, after this, the Lord Jesus will begin to tell parables and 
and it, it's not necessarily the main point of the parable, but in the parable, in the background of the parable, as he tells the parable, he'll talk about the main character going away. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, which when a man found, he hid, and then he went. He left, and he sold all that he had. And then he comes back at a later time, and he buys the field so that he can claim that treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain merchant man seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found that pearl of great price, he went, he leaves, he sells all that he has, and then he comes back at a later time, and then he purchases, he reclaims that pearl. And then notice over, I'll, I'll read a couple parables here. Go over to um, Matthew chapter 24. And, and here in verse, Matthew 24, verse 45, Who then is a faithful and a wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Verse 46, Matthew 24, verse 46, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he'll say he will make him ruler over all of his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he's not aware of, and he'll cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, in the body of this parable, the master gives responsibilities and like a good manager, what does a good manager do? He trains people, tells them what to do, explains what he expects, and then does he stand right over them, breathing down their neck and doing the job for them? No. He, he leaves. And he lets them do what they're told to do. And that's exactly what you have here. He gives a response, and then he's gone, and he's absent. And during his absence, all of the servants are being tested. It's a time of testing. And he's going to come back and he's going to hold them responsible. Of course, some are going to come under damnation. And that's in this parable. And then you have a similar parable over in Matthew 25. Same, a similar idea. Verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man, and here again, traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them, and to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise he who had received two, more also. But he who had received one, went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And then you have the, 
the Lord settling with on the talents. The Lord Jesus is that person here. He is like that man who travels to a far country, and in his absence, his servants are being tested. All those, they're being going to be held accountable. Notice that often in the scriptures, when the Lord Jesus, when he would talk about going away, later he would ascend. And the disciples were told, if I go, I will come again. And so they're thinking, the Lord Jesus promised he was going to go away. And in some places it says, and behold, I come quickly, like in Revelation. And so when he left, what did the disciples think? Did they, did they think, well, he left, he ascended. Well, when he was crucified, he rose very quickly after that. Just a few days, and here he's standing before us. And so, he's gone to heaven, but a week? A month? A year? They're wondering, when will he come? Well, today we know that he's been gone to heaven for almost 2,000 years. And in this parable, he doesn't state it. He doesn't state it as if to say, now understand that you're not to expect me for a long time. But in the body of a parable, you have that little statement, after a long time. And so, it's just like in the book of, in the letter of Peter. He says, there are these people, these scoffers, who say, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. As if to say, God has not been intervening. Well, we know God has intervened. God intervenes in human history. But he says, of this they willingly are ignorant. And then he talks about these judgments. And then he makes a statement. And we know that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. And it's right in that context. And so, in a sense, from God's viewpoint, God could say to us, well, listen, it's only been two days. <laughs> but that's the thought. So, so you have an almost identical, uh, maybe this is a parallel over in Mark. And turn over there. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 32 of Mark 13 but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest, coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all. Watch. This idea of the Lord Jesus going away was a very difficult thing for the disciples to, uh, to accept. And we can tell that, not only from, uh, from, well, from places in the synoptics, but when you go over to John's Gospel, and the Lord Jesus, when he gets in the upper room, 
There he's going to talk about this repeatedly. He's going away. And he'll use that idea, going and coming, going and coming. And it's going to be used repeatedly there. And you can tell by the way the conversation is going, the disciples are really nervous about this. Here in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke, the point of these parables will be that his absence is a time of testing. Okay? That's obvious. It's a time of self-denial. Then, let's turn over to John, and there, this will immediately be brought up when the Lord Jesus is with his disciples for that, that last Passover. This is in, in verse 1 of chapter 13. Notice, though, while in John's gospel, he will talk about the, this testing. It's going to be a time of testing. But here in John, an added thing is going to be brought out. He's going to talk about all the benefits that come to us by his absence. So, just notice, verse thir- uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father. That's where he starts here. It's the very first statement. He's going to depart. And then he goes on. Having loved his own that are in the world, he loved them to the end. He's preparing them for this great change which is going to occur. And he goes on. Let's go down to to chapter 13, verse 31. And I'm going to read from verse 31 down through 14, verse 6. And here you're going to see just how bothered the disciples are by this. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now, that is when Judas had gone out, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? I'm I'm struck by this because he's talked about some immense things. He talks about his glory. He talks about the new commandment to love one another. There's a lot there in verse 31 through verse 35. But what does Peter fix on? What's the one thing that Peter... That's the one thing Peter heard. (laughs) Going away? What do you mean? So that's, that's what he sees. Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. 
Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A couple observations here. When the Lord Jesus is speaking in the flow, he's telling, he tells Peter, he's talking directly to Peter in verse 38, that he's going to forsake him. And while these things were all being heard by all the disciples, what you have in the beginning of chapter 14 is spoken directly to Peter. A lot of people externally looking at Peter and Judas, they may think there's so many similarities. What's the difference? You ever heard people say, what's the difference between what Peter's denial and, and Judas' betrayal? But the more deeply we look, we see a great gulf. There's a huge gulf. And here you have a statement by the Lord Jesus to Peter. He says, now Peter, you're going to deny me. He's going to fail the Lord deeply. But he says, let not your heart be troubled you believe in God, believe also in me. Judas forsook belief in God. You know, he may have been a terribly conflicted person, how he was so troubled. But that doesn't mean that he had somehow come to God. Do you realize that if Judas had had his way when the men came to arrest the disciples, he was just standing there. If Jesus, the Lord Jesus had not pled for the lives of the 11 apostles, Judas would have just stood by and let them all be arrested and let them all be crucified. That's what this man had become. And so the, the Lord Jesus, he is saying to Peter, Peter, you do believe in God. And I have a plain statement for it right here. In verse, you believe in God, but then he adds something more. He says, believe also in me. This is a great thing. Because all during the time when the disciples were with the Lord Jesus, they were on a journey of discovery. At what point, by the way, do we know when all these disciples were converted? Now, were they all converted at the start? Were they? Or I mean, do we know? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know more than I, I I've wondered about this many times. But we know that they, they knew about the Lord Jesus. He was the son of David. He's a prophet. When they would hear that term, son of David, what did they think? Is he, David had a lot of sons. They didn't all reign. What did they think? Even the term Messiah. What was the Messiah? Was he going to be a kind of a super David? Did they know what the term son of man meant or the term son of God. They're discovering he is a prophet. Oh, he's more than a prophet. He's the very prophet that Moses had predicted. He is the son of David. He's not more than that. He is the Messiah. 
He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. And when the Bible uses that term, Son of God, it means deity. Because just like my children have my their parents' genetic information, they are what we are. When it uses that expression, the Son of God, it means that the Lord Jesus is everything that His Father is. He's the Son of God. Did they understand all of that right at the start? I don't think so. Remember how in Matthew 16, Peter stands, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was at that point, up till they were asking these questions. He would say, Who do men say that I the Son of... And they uh, some say, I, I think they were kind of nervous there. They, some say Jeremiah. Uh, they're not prepared to commit. They're not prepared to say, I'm convinced. Rather, some say, some say Elijah or one of the prophets. We're not quite sure. They had all kinds of questions. And here the Lord Jesus is taking them right here in this verse. He's taking them on a huge step. They've come to discover a lot of things about the Lord Jesus. And now he's telling them, all you men, you've been worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've been worshiping the God of heaven. You've been worshiping the God that all the Old Testament saints, they had known and worshiped. And now you are to put your faith in a man on the earth in the exact same way in which you put your faith in Almighty God in heaven. That's what he's saying. Is that a big step? These men, he's bringing them along. Stage, stage by stage, step by step. And so, he goes on. And, and let's go over to chapter 16. This is, this is very encouraging. Here in chapter 16, notice what he says in verse 7. And he, again, this, as you go, and you should read these chapters. Go read 13 through 17 of John, and notice how many times you'll talk about this idea. I go away, and I come. I go, I come. This idea, he's going to leave. And then he, and then he says in verse uh, 7 of 16, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And notice what it says about that. Of sin because they do not believe in me. This is the great proof of sin. Man's unbelief, rejection of Christ. They do. But what is righteousness? How do we learn about righteousness? Of righteousness, notice what it says, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Men have proved their sinfulness. We proved our sinfulness by rejecting Christ. The proof of the righteousness of Christ is that he deserves to be with the Father and the proof that the Father is righteous is because He welcomes Him up to His, at His right hand. And that's where we see real righteousness. The Lord Jesus, who as a man, and, and this is a great thing to get a hold of because it's gonna be emphasized. You go through the New Testament and you'll notice when it talks about Him in His ascension, 
It'll emphasize his humanity. When he arose from the dead, he did not leave his human body in that grave. He arose physically as a man, and he arose as a man, and the Bible will speak of him as a man at God's right hand. Like you remember Nathaniel, and he, and he says, when, he says um, when Christ said, I saw you under the fig tree, and he, and he says, thou art the king of Israel, you are, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. He says, you marvel that I said, I saw you under the fig tree, you shall see greater things than these. For you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The Son of Man. The heavens opened. He's telling us what Jacob saw way back in the book of Genesis. What we call Jacob's ladder. That staircase is fulfilled in Christ. And Christ is going to be the staircase into heaven. And, J- and Nathaniel will see it. And, it's, and when he talks about the ascended Christ, he talks about him as the Son of Man. So that there was a man on earth who was among us, who understood us, who walked on the same kind of streets we walk on and ate the same kind of food that we eat and understands us through and through. And he was among us. He became a man. And he will be our representative as a man going where no man could have ever gone before up to God's right hand to not only prove that he is righteous, that the Father is righteous, but in order to make sinners righteous. That's the thought. What is the proof of sin? That they did not believe in me. What's the righteousness? Because I go to the Father. (laughs) You couldn't be any, how could anyone be more righteous than to be, be called up to sit at God's right hand? That is the proof of absolute righteousness. And then of judgment because the judge, the prince of this world is judged. And certainly at Calvary, the devil played all his cards. He showed himself for what he really is. And this world is condemned awaiting execution. So that's what you have. And then you go on in, in, uh, in verse 16. This is, is striking. Over in verse 16 of chapter 16, he, this lines up in my mind with what you earlier had where we started in Matthew 9 about the bridegroom. A little while and you will not see me. Again a little while and you will see me. Because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he says, A little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves what I said a little while? And you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Most assuredly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will sorrow, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. 
A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. We might apply this to that brief time when the Lord Jesus was taken to be crucified. And he doesn't specify, except that he says he goes to the Father. And I, theologically, I, I, I understand by that 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 would apply to his ascension. And so, certainly it is true that people were laughing and playing games and trying to celebrate while the Lord Jesus was being crucified. And the disciples were in a total confusion and depression and discouragement. But actually, all down through these last 2,000 years, people have been doing that, haven't they? They've been celebrating. They've been celebrating. And, and, uh, and, and, and you wonder, why is it that these Christians, they, um, they sing these funeral dirges and they don't seem to, they don't seem to enjoy dance. I mean, a lot of these people don't even square dance. And so, I, I, what's wrong with the Christians anyway? And a lot of people are protesting. I think, we, you know, we need to learn to celebrate a little. But it has been, we'd have to say, a little out of character for many Christians. They don't feel quite at home with the idea. Why is that? We're in a warfare. We feel like we're not at home. And this is, in fact, the attitude, the character. Look at the sufferings that God's people have been going through in the last 2,000 years. The martyrdoms, the horror that they've experienced. And so it appears that he's simply describing this whole concept of self-denial. Now, when the Lord Jesus was with his with his disciples, he begins to talk a lot about the idea of faith. Now, there's a lot of talk about faith in the Old Testament, but I really think that this concept of faith becomes a huge topic once you get into the New Testament. It's brought up incessantly in the New Testament. And self-denial is characteristic of faith. In the Old Testament times, they had all these visceral, uh, visible things which were right there. And it was necessary to teach them. Like they had the temple, before that the tabernacle, there were the ceremonies, there were the offerings, the priestly garment, all these things which appealed to the senses. And you could walk into the temple, you could smell the incense or even the sacrifice. At times when they'd offer some sacrifice, like the peace offering, they would eat the sacrifice or they'd eat the Passover meal. They would taste it. You could touch it. You would certainly see it. It was, it appealed to your, to the, your visceral sense. When you get into the New Testament, there, they begin to de-emphasize those things. It's not the big emphasis, the temple worship, but it was still going on during the time when the Lord was on earth, right? When you get to Hebrews, he talks about these things which are ready to pass away. They had all the, that, uh, these visible, physical, sensory things that God gave them. But then, the Lord Jesus was there. 
physically there. They could eat a meal with him. They could smell the food he ate and eat the same food with him. They could reach around and put their arm around him. In a sense, you remember Mary, how that when she met the Lord Jesus in the garden, she's clinging to him, and he says, touch me not. What does he say? Touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my God and your God, to my Father and your Father. He's going away. And so now that the Lord Jesus has gone away to heaven, and not only has he gone away to heaven, but the temple itself has been destroyed, the sacrifices are gone, all those rituals, and we have a few few things we do, like we baptize, we, there's a few things, we lay hands on people when they're sick, we anoint with oil, but really, the things that we do do, they are so, they're so simplified, I remember the first time I went to a baptism. I'd been raised in a more ritualistic background. I looked, is that all? <laughs> For us, the symbols that we do have are more like a window. You don't look at the window, you look through it to the reality beyond it. Now, there are some people who, they don't see a reality beyond it. They don't see Christ in glory. They're not like Nathaniel, where the Lord Jesus said to him, Hereafter you'll see the heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. They don't see him. You remember Stephen? How that in Acts... Well, turn over there. This is striking. Acts chapter 7. And it talks about when he was ready to be stoned. Verse 55 they're gnashing out his teeth. They're just infuriated by this man. And, and, but he is full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Would that be the Shekinah? He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look! I see the heavens opened! And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now you know he's a real evangelist. Because he wants everyone to see what he sees. Look! I see him! Do you see him? Do you see him? What does he see? He sees a man. At God's right hand. He calls it, you don't often, in the epistles especially, hear very often the solitary name Jesus. That was his earthly name. The name that Joseph and Mary were told to give him. His human name. All alone, without the titles. What is he saying? The man. Jesus. And then it says, the son of, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing. He might have thought he was taking his stand, but what he discovered that day was that the Lord Jesus was taking his stand with him. And he saw the Lord Jesus. This is what Christians do. Nathaniel told, was told he would see him. Stephen did see him. Now, I know what you're saying. I'm not Stephen, right? That's what you're thinking. 
I wish. I wish that was my experience. That's glorious. But turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. Look at what it says there. Go over there. And there, I'll begin in verse 5 of Hebrews 2, for he has not put the world to come of which he spoke in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. We see Jesus. So he's telling us here in Hebrews chapter 2 that what Nathaniel was told he would see, what Stephen did see, is what we see. How do we see it? How do we see the Lord Jesus? That's what we see. Jesus That when the Lord ascended, it's as if as He ascended, He left behind a window. And we're able to look up through that window and see the Lord Jesus, a man at God's right hand. And God has made this possible. And the way He talks there in John, He had to first do that in order to send the Holy Spirit. He had to be there at God's right hand first. And then He said He would ask the Father and the Father would send the Holy Spirit. This was necessary. The Bible says we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, things which are not seen are eternal. We are looking at things which can't be seen. (laughs) That's what the Bible says. But how is that possible? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, we read, Faith is the substance of things hope for, the evidence of things not seen. What does that mean? Of course, he's talking about faith in God. I think we supply that to the verse, don't we? We understand. When you believe God, you believe God for things which you do not yet have, things you hope for. Now, when a lost person believes God, he doesn't have anything. Everything to the lost person, when they put their faith in God, it's all in the future. So, here they are. They're lost, they're condemned, they're under con, and they're believing for things yet in the future and things which they cannot see. And so, and, and as a believer, we don't yet have our crowns, our rewards, There are things which we have the promise of eternal life. We possess eternal life in a sense now. But the Bible also says that the narrow road leads unto life. There's life at the end. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. 
So there's a sense in which in the end we will experience life in a full way. Heaven in the future. And all that we'll have there in heaven, that's yet future. And then, everything that's important to you as a Christian, what are those things? Justification, forgiveness, eternal life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What are the things which are important to you? The only thing I can think of that's visible is, well, we have the fellowship of saints, but there's an invisible quality to it, and the Word of God. I've got a Bible in my hands. But I, um, but virtually everything that's important to us are things which are either yet hope, we get hope for them, they're yet future, or you can't see them. But when you believe God, by the Holy Spirit of God, God makes those things so real to you that they become substantial and evidential. It's like you can feel them, that you can hold them, that you've got evidence. And you that's the way you talk. Listen, listen to another Christian, he's witnessing to somebody. And he's and he's going on, and he's talk telling his testimony. And then he start to, to talk about how that the Lord justified him and how that he received the spirit of God and how that he knows he has eternal life. And he'll talk about all, and he says these are so real. I've got hard evidence for this. Then the guy's listening, talking to him, saying, hard evidence, what are you talking about? It's all this spiritual stuff that is, you can't see it, but it is. For him, when he believed God, God makes it evidential. God makes it substantial. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, more real than if you could see and touch and smell and taste. That's why in, the, in John he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Is that possible? How many of you have thought, if only I could have walked beside the Lord Jesus. What a glorious thing. I, I wonder, when we get to heaven, are we going to watch all those? Is God going to gather the molecules together and show us, a, you know, is he gonna, are we going to get to see all that happened? But think of this. The common Christian, the babe in Christ, knows more than the disciples did during most of his pilgrimage. There were things that they, there were open questions with them, things they were wondering about. If somebody today doesn't know that Jesus Christ is God, we say he's not a Christian, right? <laughs> is that right? That's the facts. So that today, the common possession of the believer, we have a link to heaven. And we, we feel the absence. We mourn, his, we mourn the absence. We feel like we long for his presence. But in actual fact, because he has gone away, he is closer to us than he could have ever been otherwise. That's what he's saying in these passages. You go over to Romans chapter 10. And there he's talking about the distance people have from God. Well, let's do it. It's, we're, we're far enough along. We'll, let's look at this. It's a striking thing. He quotes out of Deuteronomy, chapter, chapter 10 of Romans, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But, this is verse 6 of Romans 10. 
But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Now he's quoting out of, out of uh, Deuteronomy 30. And he's giving, he's going, what Paul is going to do is he's going to give a Christian interpretation of that verse out of the Deuteronomy in the Law of Moses. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him shall not be put to shame. Hmm. People sense the great distance they have from God. How, how big a distance? It's not just a distance from earth to heaven. It's a distance from hell to heaven. They stand on this earth and they think, how can I reach up there? How could I somehow ascend and make myself somehow good enough for God? And he says, do not say in your heart who shall ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. And do not say who shall descend into the abyss. People think, I've got to somehow reach down into the abyss, the mess, the ugliness of all of my sins, and somehow sort it all out, fix it all. What did Christ do when he went to the cross? He dealt with the damage of sin, didn't he? Don't say who shall descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That God, by Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, what he's done is he's made it possible to come near to us. So we're thinking, well, he's way away. No, God has come near. How near? He's come so close that he virtually puts the very words you need to say when you come to him, he puts them into your mouth. He tells you what to say. And he tells you what to feel and think and do. Yeah, he does. He puts it in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And so, you, you go through this book and you see, we are looking to a man in heaven, a man at God's right hand, who brings God near. Now, there... In the Old Testament, you have that story about the, the prostitute. Remember how she, when Proverbs 7, she meets with that, um, that naive young man? And she says, the good man, he's gone away on a far journey and he shall come home at the day appointed. You remember that? Of course, her thinking is, the man that she should be loyal to the man that she should have her heart, keep her heart for, he's gone. He's gone away, and who knows where he is. Therefore, the coast is clear. Let's sin. That's what she's saying. 
The good man of the house has gone away on a long journey. So for her, the thinking is out of sight, out of mind. What's the attitude of faith? What does faith say? Faith says, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Amen? That's the very attitude of faith. That the life of the Christian is a life of faith. And faith is characteristic of the Christian. There is, because Christ is at God's right hand, and there's really nothing for us to focus on down here. That's not where the focus is. It's on Christ in glory. So the only way that you have to relate to God has to be by faith. There is no other way. So that's what the Bible says. The just shall live by faith. You stand by faith. The gospel is communicated from faith to faith. By faith, by, uh, by faith we believe God to be saved. Everything. There's not one step of progress you'll ever make in the Christian life without faith. Without faith it's impossible to please God. That's what the Bible says. And God has made this by his ascension into heaven. He's left, he's abandoned us to this one idea. You've got to believe him. Is that right? That's where we're at. I think we should pray and, and we should say, Lord, you, 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 you promised this to Nathaniel. Stephen saw it and you tell us that this is our common possession. This is what all Christians have. We see Jesus. I want to have a relationship with, with you by faith. Amen? Should we do that? I don't know. There might be somebody here who's never yet trusted the Lord Jesus. Well, this is what you need. This is the solution. You need to look to the Lord Jesus. You need to hear Stephen. Look. He said, I see Jesus. See, heaven's opened. And the Son of Man standing. Our Father, we give thanks that there is a man at your right hand. Oh God, when we think of the great distance we feel, and we pray, our God, to, that, that we more and more would become a believing people, that we would discover this, that we would drink deeply from this well, our God, we just pray for your special grace. If there's anyone here who has never seen the Lord Jesus in this way, never looked to him by faith, our God, we know that you're able, just as you say, the word, it is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, even the word of faith which we preach. And our God, we give thanks that whoever shall confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, he shall be saved. Father, we give thanks for your great mercies and grace. Father, the many needs among us, we give thanks for our source. We give thanks, our God, for your superabounding grace. And so, our God, we pray, minister your word to our hearts. In the name and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
Well, we thank God for this message on faith. And it seems like we're being reminded of this quite a bit, of the need for faith and to believe God. Um, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Well, we know that our faith doesn't have anything to do with it in one sense. It's the Lord's power that overcomes the world. But what's he saying? You're going to have to believe. Unless you believe, you won't be established. Um, We've talked about that uh, the woman with the issue of blood, she's pressing through the crowd, touches the Lord. He says, I perceive that power has gone out of me. Well, the power is what healed her. But when the time came and she was um, had to come out in the open in front of everybody, he says to her, your faith has healed you. Your faith has saved you. Well, why? Because it's the instrument through which his power flowed to her. And if she hadn't believed God, it wouldn't have happened. So, Lord, increase our faith. Um, I thought of uh, something the Valard said a long time ago uh, from 1 Peter 1.8, though, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you, re- you greatly rejoice with joy unspeakable, joy inexpressible and full of glory. So though now you seem not yet believing, you rejoice. And uh, the thing that he brought out was we were, there was a group of us Christians sitting around and he said, what a wonderful thing it is that we're all, we all love someone we've never seen. We love someone we've never seen physically. We've seen him spiritually. Well, amen.